Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part three of a three-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Possibly my favorite part of every Ellerslie semester is what we're about to hear right here. I love this meditation. This is nothing more than a meditation upon what the Old Testament has required of this one to come. It has created a measuring stick, and it says the one who comes, if he is to be determined as the Christ, he must perfectly fulfill this test. If he doesn't, he is not the Christ. He would be a false messenger. Therefore, O Israel, handle him accordingly and appropriately. But if he is, in fact, the one, submit. This test I'm about to give you is absolutely impossible for any man to pull off. Let's just get that out of the table and let's ruminate on that. No man could possibly do this. Now, some of you may not believe that yet, but when I start giving you what this Messiah must do, you're going to realize that even if you had an idea at the age of two years old that you thought, I'm going to be the Messiah. And so you study all the things that you need to do. It's out of your control. There are certain things that have to be done even before you're born. They have to, it has to be true about your lineage and which woman you even come out of. It matters who your father is. You try and control those details of your life. Your lineage has to perfectly prove in agreement with your life. So it's not just that you can make things look like it after you're two. And you try it. At the age of two, how smart are we? Okay, we're not able to conspire to set a stage to actually come forth and be called out of Egypt. You try that. You know, you're looking up at your mom. You're like, go to Egypt. (laughs) Well, most likely your parents are going to, not in your life are we going to go to Egypt. So let's begin. The Messiah test. Is he the promised Savior or not? And if you say in your heart, now this is Deuteronomy 18. This is the same passage of scripture that we were reading when Moses is saying, there is a prophet who will come in my name. When he comes, hear him. And then Moses shows up at the Mount of Transfiguration. And Moses, Elijah, and the booming voice of God, what do they declare? Hear him. This is he. This is the one I spoke of. Here is the prophet. So what does Moses say right after this? He says, and if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How will we know it when it's a false word? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord... If the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Do not submit to him. He, everything he speaks must come to pass. Everything. You know, it's not very wise. If we were the counselors of Jesus and he says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. What are you going to say as his counselor? We were really doing well here. We'd pass this, 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 this test. Don't add to the test. You know that Jesus adds to the test? He literally speaks 
This sickness will not end in death, he says to Lazarus. Oh, Jesus, oh boy, we had it in the bag. They will crucify me in Jerusalem, and on the third day I'll rise again. Oh, don't say that, because now you have to do it. That's right. He has to do it. If he doesn't do it, it's not just that he has to fulfill the whole Old Testament, but anything he adds to it, anything he speaks, he is held accountable to. He has to do it. If he does not do it, he is not your Messiah. The blossoming rod. I'm giving a little away here. He has done it! Okay, but I'm going to try and hold back on that. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I, see, I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. The rod has come. Who's going to perform it? The word of God himself will perform the rod of an almond tree. The canon test. If Jesus passes it, then he has the divine right to rule and control. I could just sort of see a negotiation. All the peoples of the earth. And we're saying, do we understand? This is the test for a Messiah. And there could be snickers in the roofs. No man could do that. But what if a man did? You see, this Bible, these 39 books testify that God has spoken. That he has promised. And he is saying that he will do it. You, have, you can throw out God if he doesn't perform. So in a legal sense, can we all agree that if there is a man that perfectly fulfills what this book says, would you agree? First of all, it would have to be divine. It would be a proof of God. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like the old statement about evolution. Okay, we come into a, a junkyard, you know, a big garage full of parts and said, yeah, if, if this could all be turned into a jumbo jet that could actually fly, uh, would you believe that uh, there is a creator? Yeah. Uh, there had to be some intelligence behind this. There is no way that that could happen any other way. So if Jesus passes it, then he has the divine right to rule and control. Listen to what Jesus says. Now I tell you before it comes, or before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Now, in our translations, it adds he to try and help us out because grammatically it doesn't sound right. But what he is saying is, I am God. Jehovah is the statement, I am that I am. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm telling you what will happen before it happens so that when it does happen, you will know who I am. Any questions? You see, Jesus said in his word, 39 books of it, over 1,300 years of time, he says, this is what will happen. And I tell you in advance, so that when it does happen in the life of Jesus, you would believe. How hard is this? For whatever reason, many of us struggle, even though it is fairly simple. One, he must prove to be the Son of God. Now, with each one of these, I'm going to have an Old Testament reference and a New Testament. I'm going to get us warmed up here. However, to streamline this message, I've had to trim this down massively. Okay? So I have, I have taken so much of the girth out of this, but we could spend all afternoon going through this, and I'm sure some of you would really enjoy it. Some of you would be very uncomfortable in these seats. He must prove to be the Son of God. By the way, that's not the easiest thing to prove. 
So the Old Testament prophecy, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the, the decree. The Lord has said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The canon test has been set. The one who will come will be God. He will be Emmanuel, God with us. His goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. It is actually the creator God who is coming to save you. He will be the son of God. In other words, his lineage will not descend from Adam. I know it sounds strange, even though he's the seed of the woman. Where is the paternal input into his life? Jesus' actual father, biologically, get this, is God. I know that it just sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Biologically, he doesn't have an earthly father. He has a spiritual father. That one just happens to be Jehovah. Okay? Jesus is God, and he was before he was born. However, he is also born. And his father, because all of us need one, is not of this world. He is Jehovah. Thou art my son. You see, some of you could say, well, I'm a son of God too. Not the same way. You see, you've been born anew. You've been grafted into sonship because of faith in Christ. His sonship is your sonship. You receive his, uh, his sonship, his inheritance by faith. He is in actuality the son of God. New Testament fulfillment. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Son of God, if you can't figure that one out. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. How's he going to get the throne of his father David? Get this! His father... Adoptive father, biologically, his name is Joseph. Who guess, guess who Joseph is? He's in the lineage of the line of the kings. And so though his father, Jesus' father, is God, his adoptive father actually has the lineage of kings to offer him. Do you know that Joseph would have been the king if kings still were in Judah? He would have been the king. And guess who gains the right and the title? The son of Joseph. As strange and as bizarre as that is, that's the story. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be seen? I know not a man. I'm not married. I'm not intimate with a man. You can't get a baby that way. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also, listen, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. You see, when people discredit the virgin birth, you need to realize what they're doing. They're discrediting the messiahship of Jesus Christ. If he's not the son of God, if he's not born of a virgin, he's not your messiah. This isn't a debatable point. He's either the messiah or he's not. So he's either born of a virgin or he's not. If he's not born of a virgin, he's not our messiah. He must prove the seed of the woman. Old Testament prophecy. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Here's the promise. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. I like the word crush a lot better than bruise. And he must do that. 
New Testament fulfillment. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Why do you think Paul is emphasizing that? You see, God didn't just send forth his son down from heaven. Bloop, he just showed up. He was born of a woman. Why is Paul mentioning that? Because it fulfills canon. He must be of the seed of a woman. Made of, made of a woman, made under the law. He must prove the seed of Abraham. You know that Jesus cannot descend from just any race. He must come from Abraham. Now, Abraham had two sons. So there, you can look through all these. I'm going to have to skip over quite a few of these. He must also prove the seed of Isaac, which is the second son. The second son of Abraham, if he is not born of the lineage of Isaac, he is not your Messiah. However, it's more specific than that because Isaac had two sons, and he must be born of the second one of those, which is named Jacob or Israel. And Israel had 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, one of the tribes is Judah. And out of that tribe, God makes a promise. He makes a promise to one form or line of lineage out of Judah, which is the lineage of David. And God says, out of this man will come forth the Messiah. If he is not of the descendancy of David, he is not your Messiah. Which is why the New Testament starts out with genealogies, which bore most of us to death. However, you know what it's saying? It's him. You know that Mary, his birth mother, is of the lineage of David? And do you know that his adoptive father is of the lineage of David in the line of kings? Uh, that's pretty amazing. This is actually not some huge line. As you will see when we go through, as a, as a class, the lineage of majesty... This line got down to one character at times. One person left in it. And we're not talking about a huge line here. And yet he has to come out of that line. And if he doesn't, he's not the Messiah. He must be born of a virgin. He must be Emmanuel, God with us. Like I said, these are not things that you can make up or do. Do you know that the amazing thing about uh, the Jewish culture is that they kept impeccable genealogical records? Why? Well, because the Messiah hinges on it. You see, if you're going to recognize the Messiah, you need to test him against the genealogical record. And when Jesus was born, do you know the genealogical record could be traced 77 generations back to Adam? That's pretty amazing. I don't know how well you could do in your own genealogical record. 77 generations at the time of Jesus back to Adam. You could actually prove exactly where he came from. No one could argue it. However, there was a lot of uh, misinformation floating around. Oh, he was born illegitimate. We don't even know the father. There was a lot of stuff going around. He's from Nazareth. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. This guy has to be born in Bethlehem. So what do you think the Gospels are for? The Gospel accounts are four writings that are stating the same thing from four different angles. Uh, you remember that canon test? As it is written, it was fulfilled. To the jot and to the tittle. He must be born of a virgin. Have you ever tried to figure out how you could do that in your own life? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a son. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. You see, this virgin will bear a son, and that son will be God with us. New Testament fulfillment. And she brought forth her firstborn son. Why do you think that word firstborn is important? Because she had to be a virgin. You see, a lot of people will try and remove things like that. Say, oh, it doesn't matter, does it? Oh, yes, it does. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. 
Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, being, which being interpreted as God with us. That's the language of canon. This was fulfilled to prove him before you that he is, in fact, divine. He must be born in Bethlehem, Judea. At this day and age, travel... Uh, wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. I mean, you could just hop on in a car now and zoom around. But Mary and Joseph both live in a little diddly squat junk town called Nazareth. Not a pretty place. It's in the, the territory of Galilee. And that's where they live. There's no reason to go venturing out to Bethlehem, especially when you're nine months pregnant. However, if Jesus is not born in Bethlehem, he's not your Messiah. You know that it has to be? He has to be born in Bethlehem. So what's God doing? I mean, they're in Nazareth. That was the wrong pick, God. Couldn't we have picked someone in Bethlehem? They're in Nazareth. She's pregnant. Oh, no. What's going to happen? Well, Caesar Augustus calls for a census. I mean, this is amazing. And guess what? Because the census was based on the father, in this situation, Joseph's lineage, he's from the city of Bethlehem. His lineage is because he's of the line of David. So he must return to Bethlehem at the nine-month point for Mary. God's like, check. <laughs> Do we realize how profound that is? You know what a big outcry there was? He's not the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. You might want to look into it a little deeper. He was born in Bethlehem. What? Why would someone from Nazareth be born in Bethlehem? Check the records. Remember that census that was called? When was that called? 33 years ago. No way. Where would Mary and Joseph have taken him? Where would they have had to go legally? Bethlehem. Check the public records in Bethlehem. No way. No way! Yes way. He was born in Bethlehem. Now, Jesus, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. Kings must fall down before him offering gifts. Uh-huh. That's how you prove he's the Messiah. Did it happen? Yes, it did. He must be called out of Egypt. That's a strange place to be called out of. Don't they live in Nazareth? Yeah, he has to be called out of Egypt. He was. Elijah must come before him. Uh, Elijah? You mean like Elijah, Elijah? Read it. It's pretty amazing. He must be anointed with the Spirit. His ministry must commence in Galilee. Do you know that if Jesus' ministry does not commence in Galilee, 
he's not the Messiah? That's where it says he will begin. And guess what? Where do you think he drafted his first disciples? Uh Uh-huh. In Galilee. Fishing. He must enter Jerusalem riding upon a colt. What an obscure statement that is. If he doesn't do it, he's not your Messiah. You will recognize him because of this. Old Testament prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, that's odd, but that's what he will do. New Testament fulfillment. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find a donkey tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, or untie them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught to you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them. And straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king comes unto thee, meek and sitting upon a donkey, and the colt the full of a donkey. He did it. Now some of you could say, well, he knew the prophecy, so he was manufacturing that. So, if that's your conclusion, there's a whole bunch that has just gone before. That's sort of hard to manufacture, but everything after this is going to be even harder to manufacture. He must be undesirable to many. He must be meek. He must be without guile. He must be consumed with zeal for God's house. Remember him turning over the money changers' tables? He must bear the reproach. I'm going to stop on this one. He must be betrayed by a friend. If he's not betrayed by a friend, he's not your Messiah. An odd way of looking at it. This is part of how you will recognize the Messiah. He will be betrayed by someone who's very, very close. Old Testament prophecy. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted which did eat of my bread and hath lifted up his heel against me. Jesus speaking at the Last Supper. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Jesus actually leverages this as the big statement. I will be betrayed. And it will be someone who I trusted and someone who has dipped their bread with me. And I'm telling you before it happens so that you believe. No one would have dreamt Judas would do this. No one would have thought it. And yet, he told you ahead of time so that when it happened, you would believe. The sheep must be scattered. Do you know that if Jesus' disciples are loyal to him and stand with him throughout the whole thing, he's not the Messiah? His sheep must be scattered. He must be sold for 30 pieces of silver and the potter's field must be purchased with the money. This is one of the most extraordinary little ditties that God weaves into the story. Judas doesn't just fulfill the fact that he is betraying Jesus and ultimately fulfilling the messiahship of Jesus, but he has to betray him in a very specific way. This messiah has to be sold for 30 pieces. Then that silver needs to be thrown down in the floor of the temple. And then that money needs to be used to buy something very specific known as the potter's field. Jesus, the whole while, is praying 
in Gethsemane and then a prisoner. How is he going to make that happen? Old Testament prophecy. Listen to this. This is extraordinary. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. That's Judas speaking. And if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it under the potter, a goodly price that I prized it of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. New Testament fulfillment. And he said unto them, what will you give me? And I will deliver them unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. Then listen to this. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. And what did Judas do? And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. I don't know if you see how extraordinary that is. But God's very enemies, his betrayers. You know it said Satan entered into Judas? Satan's conspiring to destroy the Son of God. What's he doing? He's proving his messiahship. Uh, You could use the word sovereignty, and it would not be misplaced in that statement. He must be numbered with the criminals. If he dies alone, he's not your Messiah. One, two, three. He's numbered. He's numbered along with criminals. It's amazing. He must make intercession for his murderers. They must cast lots for his clothing. Uh, His clothing seems to be removed. And however, this Messiah is going to come. And they're casting lots for it. Uh Uh-huh. If they don't cast lots for his clothing, he's not your Messiah. His hands and his feet must be pierced. Psalm 22 literally goes into detail of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it says they pierced his hands and his feet. Roman crucifixion didn't exist. And yet, our Messiah fulfills every jot and every tittle of the word that was spoken ahead of time. He must die. Mm -hmm. He can't just swoon. He must die. His bones must not be broken. You know that if a bone of this Messiah is broken, he's not your Messiah, which shows that his death has to be in a very, very specific fashion. From the very beginning of the prophecies of the Messiah, there was a foundation laid that he will be a paschal lamb, a suffering lamb of sacrifice. And in that lamb, you are not to break a bone. For not a bone of that lamb will be broken. It is a foreshadow of the coming Messiah. And yet, in Roman crucifixion, it is normal and expected to break the legs. And that will quicken the pace of the execution and the death. So let's read. Old Testament prophecy. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house. Neither shall you break break a bone thereof. This is talking about the Passover lamb. Now look at this. Psalm 34. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. However, this Messiah is going to die. He keeps all his bones. You can't lop off his head. You can't lop off his arms. He must keep his bones. What a strange statement. 
If he loses one bone, he's not your Messiah. And those bones cannot be broken. However this man is going to die, it's very specific. And if the way he dies is different than that, he's not your Messiah. New Testament fulfillment. Listen to John. John is a little more impressed about this than we are. But when they came to Jesus, okay, Jesus dies. A storm moves in. So they want to quicken the pace of the execution. So they go to the criminals that he's numbered with and break their legs. But when they come to Jesus, if they break his legs, he's not the Messiah. He's completely out of control, isn't he? He's dead. I mean, couldn't we just stop it right there? Stop. No, he's the Messiah. Now, anything that happens from this point forward doesn't count. And saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. John is actually excited about this. They broke not his legs. I know it would be typical in Roman crucifixion to break his legs. They didn't break his legs. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, that he knows that he says true, that you might believe. Why would you believe? Because his legs weren't broken. Why would you believe? Because his legs weren't broken. It's because this is the death for you. This is the long-awaited Messiah. He has done it! He fulfilled it all! The iniquity of the land has been removed in a single day! It's him! For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him should not be broken. His side must be pierced. That's not normal. In Roman crucifixion, you don't pierce a side. But Jesus' side is pierced. Why? They had to prove that he was dead. They didn't break his legs, which is normal, and his legs couldn't be broken. And they pierce his side, and out comes the gusher. You see, his death was overseen. Though the enemy tried to knock out and to crush the very one who was seemingly helpless was the victor, proving through it all he is actually the one in control. He must rise again from the dead. Uh huh. If he doesn't, he's not your Messiah. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke unto you that he was yet in Galilee? When he was yet in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. He did it. He did it. He must ascend. Yeah, try that one. Isaiah 53. Now that's, there's a lot more. I, I'm skimming the surface here, trying to get through this quickly. I'm going to read through two passages in the Old Testament. 750 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah speaks. And what he says is absolutely profound. It is an intimate, close-up picture of what we understand the crucifixion of Jesus to be. So what I did is I laid it out almost like it's a checklist. And I want you to evaluate it. God doesn't mind you putting him to the test. It's called the canon test. The Bereans are considered more noble because they test that which has given them against something. What are they testing it against? That which has been revealed. That which has already passed the canon test. If something has already passed the canon test, so Paul, speak. All right, I'll take that and measure it. Everything is tested. 
And the Bereans are considered more noble because of it. Test him. Isaiah 53, 750 years before Jesus, this was spoken. One of the things you're going to see in this is you're going to not only see the supernatural quality of the word of God in text, but you're going to see the supernatural quality of the word of God in person. Now remember, this is a a reference back to Jesus at the Last Supper. Now I tell you before it comes, 750 years before it comes to pass, in and through the prophet Isaiah, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. This is Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Test him. What do the Gospels tell you? This is what he did. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. It's called atonement. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. All right. Now I don't know where you stand in all of this. To me, it is so obvious. I don't struggle with believing the words of Scripture. However, I know I'm in a generation which greatly does struggle. The scriptures, their number one proving point is internal. We could talk about the pedigree and the preservation of it, and it's extraordinary. It really is how God has preserved this work and how it was written, how it was put together, and over how many centuries it was put together. How many authors? 40-plus authors. Uh, How do 40-plus authors over multiple thousands of years agree? How do you do this? It wasn't done by men. It was done by God. But one of the greatest testimonies of the authenticity and the power and the truthfulness of Scripture is found in it. That when it speaks, it fulfills. Whatever this prophet says must be done. If it's not done, it's a false prophet. 
And that includes the words of Scripture. The words of Scripture have been proven over and over and over again. And Jesus is the ultimate picture of it. Psalm 22. As far as I'm concerned, this is possibly one of the greatest pictures I have ever seen in my entire life of the power of God to perform that which he has promised. Psalm 22, over a thousand years before Jesus. This is written down. It's a picture of the cross. Jeremiah, what seest thou? God, I see the rod of an almond tree. You've seen well. I will hasten my word to perform it. Jesus, before a mocking crowd, before a nation which has abhorred him and rejected him and chosen a murderer instead of him, before he dies, he calls out. What does he say? My God, my God! Why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22. That's Psalm 22. Psalm 22. You see, the first line of a psalm is the trigger. He says the first line of Psalm 22. What is every Jew's mind going to go to? Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Can't you just hear it in the air? As his murderers, the ones reviling him, Hurling insults, suddenly hear the beginning phrase of a psalm. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. What would every Jewish mind think? You see, we have an, a rod of an almond tree that is budding. The fulfillment of all righteousness in front of a nation, even a nation that despises him. Let's read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've trimmed this down. You can read the full thing, but I just want you to see this. I'm a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delights in him. Quote, unquote, what is being said around him. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. You know what most physicians will describe? Because when Jesus' side was pierced, that he died of an imploded heart. Yes, he died of crucifixion. But that his heart burst. For a heart to burst, it's such extreme anxiety, such extreme weight upon it. It crushed his heart. And so when you pierce his side, out came blood and water gushing forth. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. In crucifixion, one of the telltale signs of it is extreme pain. Why? Because every bone in your body is out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue clings to my jaws. I'm thirsty. 
You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22. Read it. A thousand years before the cross is the fulfillment, the rod of an almond tree. Jeremiah, what do you see? Saints of God, what do you see? I see the rod and it's budded. You've seen well. I hastened my word to perform it. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What does God say? This is my beloved son. Hear him. Has the booming voice of God entered your soul? Psalm 22! Do you see it? He told you beforehand that when it came to pass, you would believe that he is. So what's your job? To believe. The evidence is on the table. Choose. Is he the Messiah or not? It is, in my opinion, and I'll say humble opinion, true intellectual, spiritual suicide to deny the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Yes, I would be considered a kook by those that hate Jesus. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm seeing pretty clearly on the matter. When I study scripture, I see Jesus. Jesus was measured and he passed the test. All authority has been given to him as a result. He is canon. He has the divine right to rule and control. He's been exalted to the highest position. All things under his feet. And when you believe, you enter into his work. His work of perfect righteousness. His perfect fulfillment of the canon. And you enter into his authority. And the power of the scriptures is made available to you. Not just in your head, but in your life. And now you are called living epistles. Living letters. Living letters written by God. To reveal the same exact message. You are measured. The world should be able to lay your life next to the 66 books of Scripture and see that you measure. Same wood grain. You're a new creature. Same fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will know my children. You will know my disciples. How? By their love for one another. Same fruit. God is known because of his love. We saw it. We witnessed it. It's him. God says, hear him. I want to beg each and every one of us to not trifle and to dicker and to not listen to the serpent, but to listen to the booming voice of Scripture that says, it is him. Bend your knee and declare he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you so much for listening to part three of this three-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. 
Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.